like to thank you all for joining us here at Henry Jackson Society for this event towards a responsible post-Brexit immigration system. I'm Dr. Rafi Vassal, I'm a research fellow here at Henry Jackson Society and I sit in two different centres, the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism and the Centre on Social and Political Risk. So, it's widely agreed that both within the academic and political realm that immigration-related concerns, including those associated with the EU freedom of movement principle, fed into the leave result delivered back in June 2016 with the UK scheduled to withdraw from the European Union on October the 31st, our attention today turns to how the UK's immigration system could look like in the post-Brexit context. This subject gives rise to a number of interesting questions. What skills and qualifications should be prioritised under such a system? Should it entail a closer relationship, a closer travel arrangement with Canada, Australia and New Zealand? And should our understanding of the social and economic integration of various ethnic minority groups in the UK inform the design of a future post-Brexit immigration system? To help us move forwards in addressing some of these questions, we are delighted to host our guest speaker for today, Professor Eric Kaufman. Professor Kaufman is a professor and assistant dean of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, and he's author of a number of high-profile books, firstly being White Shift, Immigration, Populism and the Future of White Majorities, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America and the Orange Order. He wrote a report for the think tank Demos entitled Changing Places, Mapping the White British Response to Ethnic Change. He is co-editor, among others, of Political Demography and editor of Rethinking Ethnicity, majority groups and dominant minorities. An editor of the journal Nations and Nationalism, he has written for Newsweek International, Foreign Affairs, New Statesman and Prospect magazines and his work has been covered in major newspaper, newspapers and magazines in the UK and the US for the past 12 years. So without further ado, Professor Eric Kelton. Thanks Rakeem. I'm not sure I can fill those shoes but anyway. Um, so yeah, I'm going to basically talk to you, talk you through a lot of uh, survey data analysis and experimental uh, evidence which would suggest in my view that um, a lot of the current thinking on what drives immigration attitudes and immigration and, and where UK immigration <coughs> policy should go uh, are in some ways flawed um, and we'll see if you agree with me. Uh, I just want to start out by talking about um, the, the question of why uh, people either support higher numbers or lower numbers of immigrants coming into a country. So what tends to be associated with immigration attitudes? What drives immigration opinion? Uh, we'll then look at the question of why has this issue become more prominent recently, the connection to populist right voting, including the Brexit vote, and then we'll look at um, the question of what happens after Brexit. Um, the first thing I want to say is that attitudes to immigration are not primarily driven by economic considerations. That is actually a consensus view in the academic literature. How you view immigration has very little to do with your income, whether you've lost your job, your class, and so on. Your personal material economic circumstances are not a, a major driver of immigration attitudes. 
Instead, what I would argue, and others would have argued, is that psychological dispositions and cultural values, deeply held values, which in many cases cut across the left-right spectrum, what we might call the open-closed or conservative-liberal dimension, is far more important in telling us who tends to want less immigration and who tends to want more immigration. Here, you, what you see is a, uh, this is from British election studies of 2015 to 18. You see a very strong correlation between views on death penalty and views on immigration. If you strongly disagree with the death penalty, on average, you're happy with current levels of immigration. Sorry, this pointer isn't working. Uh, but if you strongly agree with the death penalty, then you are in the reduced immigration a lot category. Your income levels here, illustrated by the color bars, have almost no effect on your views on immigration. So view on death penalty heavily correlated with views on immigration, and therefore not surprisingly, by the way, heavily correlated with uh, Brexit vote. So something like view on death penalty, why is that the case? It's connected again to these psychological dispositions. For example, um, is your workspace tidy or messy? You might think that has nothing to do with immigration attitudes. In fact, it has a very important correlation with immigration attitudes. People who say uh, that they are in favor of more immigration, it's a rough split between saying their workspace is messy and disorganized or neat and tidy. People who say immigration should be reduced a lot over two to one and tidy. So now, I'm not saying that's the only factor here, but these deep-seated psychological dispositions, there's a whole literature on this, very important to explaining views on immigration. This is also connected to wider ideological dispositions. So for example, um, this is from YouGov uh, data. Um, if you say, I believe both genders should be equal and would use the term feminist to describe myself, well, amongst those who want uh, much higher immigration or quite a bit more immigration, or roughly two-thirds would describe themselves as feminist amongst those who want much tighter restrictions, which is about half the sample, uh, only about eight and a half percent. So that's, it's, there's a link between these different values dimensions, cultural values dimensions, and immigration attitudes. Okay, um, I'm gonna skip this. And of course, as we probably know, there's a very strong link between those immigration attitudes and the Brexit vote. Number one driver of the Brexit vote was immigration attitudes, not a lot of these other things which people have said afterwards, like sovereignty, etc. Immigration attitudes, so here, if you want many more immigrants, the chances of you voting leave, this is from the British election study, the, the chances of you having voted to leave the European Union are about zero. If you say many fewer immigrants, your chances are about 80% or slightly above. Income bans here, whether you're earning less than 15,000 per year up to over 60,000, there is a slight difference. So poorer people, yes, were more likely to vote leave, but it's no more than about 10, 15 points compared to 80-point difference on immigration attitudes. So it's just much less important. Um, so immigration attitudes underlain by these cultural values, dispositions, and populist right voting, including I would put the Brexit phenomenon in that category, uh, heavily underlined by immigration attitudes. Okay. Then the question becomes, well, why now? Why are we talking about this so much now, not only in Britain, but in the US, in Europe, etc.? Uh, and a lot of this has to do with uh, numbers. So numbers actually do matter. They're not the only thing. I'm not going to say they are. There's obviously a lot of other things going on in politics. But let's take Britain as an example. Uh, this is a series from uh, Ipsos Mori. starts in June of 1984. 
and goes through to, in this case, September 2014. Um, but what you see actually is this gray number is net migration. It starts to uptick in 1997 when the labor government of Tony Blair comes into power from about 50,000, 150,000 reaches 300,000. And eventually under the Cameron government goes up to 330,000. And along with that, the number of people who say immigration is one of the top two issues facing the country, the percentage of people who say that begins to rise also in 1997. And it tracks at a rough correlation of about 0.7, this net migration figure. So this jagged line and the gray line are, are kind of moving together. That pattern, a paper by Andrew Geddes and James Dennison, uh, shows that in nine out of 10 West European countries, between 2005 and 2016, the same pattern. There was a significant relationship between numbers, salience of immigration, that is the number of people saying, this is not immigration attitudes. So attitudes to immigration, which are connected to values and ideology, don't change much with numbers. What changes is the people who are already anti-immigration, instead of immigration being their number five, six issue after healthcare and the economy, it rises up to become their number one, two issue. So it's that salience, which is a different concept from do you want less or more immigrants? It's amongst those who want less, immigration rises. So amongst those who voted leave, 40%. Uh, four in 10 leave voters said immigration was the number one, the number one issue facing Britain, compared to only about 5% of Remain voters. Um, and that's the big difference. And, and if you read um, Clark, uh, Whiteley, and Goodwin's book on Brexit, they've done this to, with other data, which shows pretty much the same thing. So we can't underestimate the key role of immigration in the Brexit vote. And so the question is, looking forward and beyond Brexit, um, is government policy going to deal with the anxieties or, that were driving that lead vote or not? Um, and this is just showing you the similar patterns in Europe. You can see here, this is immigration into the European Union. It starts to rise in 2013-14 to a peak of the migrant crisis and then drops. Eurobarometer data, main concern of European Union citizens, immigration rises alongside that 2013-14 to a peak in 15-15. So that's just kind of a showing this isn't just a, a British pattern. Um, and not to get into the fine detail, this is um, Denison and Geddes, and they show this relationship between that salience measure, immigration is one of the top issues facing the country, and support for the main populist right party in a country. Uh, and again, nine out of 10 West European countries, we see that relationship. They, by the way, have just published another paper uh, on this, getting into more detail and fancier statistical methods uh, to show that correlation. Um, okay. What about the situation after Brexit? Uh, and here I want to draw on some um, experimental work that I've done uh, where we sort of ask people about different scenarios and we look at their responses uh, to those different scenarios. Um, and this comes from a, a survey in late 2017 um, sponsored by uh, Policy Exchange and Birkbeck, and it's a YouGov survey. So, Here's the question. It says, the government is considering its options for Britain's immigration policy after Brexit. Currently, Britain has net migration of 275,000 a year. We know it's, I think the latest report was 230,000, but at this time it was 275, um, of which about half is European. After Brexit, European migration is expected to decline. 
And so we have two options on the table to, to deal with this question post-Brexit. So these are the two options that people saw. Um, okay, so, or sorry, I should clarify. Um, the way these exper survey experiments work is you break people into different groups. One group sees one option, another group sees another option, right? So one group saw, um, well, essentially people were asked this question, increased skilled migration from outside Europe, uh, keeping net migration at 275. So essentially what that's saying is, after Brexit, the flow of people from Europe is going to drop, and so we're going to make up that difference by increasing immigration from other parts of the world. What that's going to do is it's going to increase the number of skilled people entering the country, assuming that people from outside Europe are selected and therefore more skilled than people coming from Europe. And so the skilled share uh, is going <laughs> to increase from 40 to 50%. So under option one, immigration stays the same, but the skill level goes up. So if we believe that skills is what people really care about, they're going to be satisfied with that option. If we think numbers are what people care about, that's not going to make a big difference. The, section, the second option, however, is a decrease option. So instead of increasing skilled immigration, we're going to decrease uh, immigration from Europe, now, uh, from outside Europe. Now, because immigration from Europe's decreasing, if we decrease the immigration from outside Europe, that's really going to drop the numbers. So we say decrease net migration from 275,000 to 125,000. And 125,000 is roughly where the average British person wants the numbers. So what we're saying is 275 dropping to 125. But if you do that, the skill share of the immigrant flow is going to drop. And we're now, in this experiment, we're dropping the proportion of skilled immigrants from 40 to 20. That's a, probably a bigger drop than would happen, but we wanted to test the impact of having a less skilled immigration flow, but a decrease in numbers against relatively high numbers with an increase in skill. And it turns out, well, it turns out that roughly, people roughly split 50-50 between these two options. Between having a, in, you know, maintaining the current numbers, but increasing skill share and dropping the current numbers, but losing skill share. But now I mentioned that one of the key underlying drivers of immigration attitudes uh, are cultural values. And in my book, White Shift, I talk about these as being heavily related to themes of ethnocultural change. And so ethnocultural change, at least in the survey data when we're doing modeling of association, seems to come out very strongly as a predictor of um, a desire to reduce immigration. And so what we want to now test is, okay, is this really a conversation about skills? Is, it, is that what people are concerned about? Or is ethnocultural change actually a very important factor? And so what we did, uh, what I did here, was to change these options. So look, notice what happens here to these two options. So this is the way the question was asked. An entirely separate group of people saw the question this way. Increased skilled immigration, keeping the net figure at 275. As a result, the white British share of the UK's population declines from 80% today to 58% in 2060, which is approximately what the projections would show. Now, if you decrease immigration, lowering net migration to 125,000, there's still going to be a lot of ethnic change because that's baked into the system due to age structure. It's already going to happen just to a large extent. 
but it's not going to be quite as dramatic. It'll go from 80% today to 65%. Not a massive difference, 58 versus 65 in 2060. Are people really going to be sensitive to just a few percentage points of change? Turns out they are, massively so. So once you introduce the question of ethnic change into the survey experiment, when you have no mention of ethnic change, it's roughly 50-50 between keeping numbers as they are with a higher skill share and dropping the numbers with a lower skill share. Once you mention ethnic change, people move over 20 points in favor of lower numbers, even if it means lower skill share, considerably lower skill share. So I think this shows, this actually fits quite well with what we see in the survey data, that these cultural values and concerns are really what drive uh, immigration opinion. And therefore, if you actually maintain a system of high immigration, even if the skill level goes up, if that rate of ethnic change, which is going to be picked up over time, I would argue that that is not going to allay the concerns that are underlying uh, anti-immigration sentiment and populism. Okay. I'm going to skip ahead, actually, on this. And we can come back to these other things. I want to talk about another survey experiment that I did uh, based on uh, work with Simon Hicks and Thomas Leeper of the LSE. Um, this is a survey of May 2017 with 3,600 respondents. Uh, and the question here is this. When Britain leaves the European Union, analysts believe the government will, for economic reasons, keep immigration levels at about the same level as now. If this were to occur, how satisfied would you feel about Britain's decision to leave the EU? Zero being very dissatisfied, 10 being very satisfied, 5 being kind of neutral. Um, about 36%, over a third of leave voters, say they would be dissatisfied with that outcome, immigration remaining at the same level. And the overall satisfaction, again, this is assuming Brexit, so Britain leaving the EU, but immigration remaining the same, the overall satisfaction on a 0 to 10 scale is only barely over the five intermediate levels. So there's modest, very, very modest satisfaction uh, on the part of leave voters. This is only leave voters. Option two um, says, well, we're going to reduce immigration a little, shifting the source from Europe more towards Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Still, even with that reducing a little, there's 27% of leave voters who would be dissatisfied with that outcome, and the net overall satisfaction is, is still relatively low. It's, it's above 5, but it's only 5.95, which would suggest that even if Britain leaves the European Union, if migration numbers do not come down, there will be uh, a significant pool of dissatisfaction amongst leave voters. Not all leave voters, but the level of satisfaction is not particularly high. Another question we asked was then, okay, how might this impact voting? So we say the same thing. When Britain officially leaves the EU, the government will keep, for economic reasons, levels of migration at about the same level. If so, which party would you be inclined to vote for? And we were comparing this with um, 2015 election results. And so what we see is that the Tory vote of 36.5% in our data drops several percentage points. The labor share drops, which is interesting, and I'm not able to fully explain why that would be. But most importantly, the UKIP vote share more than triples from 4.3. Again, this data set probably undercounts UKIP voters. The shift to UKIP is 
roughly a tripling in the event that migration remains the same after Brexit. Uh, and on the option of reducing immigration a little, we still get almost a tripling, from 4.3% UKIP vote to 11.7%. Um, which I think would suggest, therefore, that if there is a, a maintenance of the existing immigration levels, there will be a share of Leave voters who will punish um, the mainstream parties. Okay. Well, I, I am Canadian, so I want to talk a bit about the point system in Canada and, and also talk a little bit about Australia and New Zealand because part of the rationale for uh, the current approach uh, on migration of the government is that control plus skills is going to take away a lot of the groundswell of dissatisfaction around immigration, uh, which I think is uh, part of the, is, is certainly part of the picture, but I think is also uh, mistaken if it thinks that it's going to uh, actually address fully the kind of questions that, that we're facing. So if we look at Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, they're char characterized by a number of features, one of which is a higher foreign-born share of the population than Britain sort of in the 22 to 24% foreign-born range compared to 14, 15 for the UK. So there, there's a higher share of foreign-born, relatively higher immigration rates. Canada's rate is, is at least right now, um, over twice as high as Britain's. We also have to factor in the relatively weaker sense, I would argue, of ethnic peoplehood. Um, certainly in Canada and in New Zealand, amongst the ethnic majority, um, and also more of a tradition of immigration, which is important. And yet, what we see, I would argue, is a convergence in those societies with what we see in Europe, uh, not to mention the United States. Um, instead of, however, because immigrants are selected and relatively high skill, the debate is not so much about immigrants putting pressure on public services or immigration being connected to terrorism or crime or some of these other themes that you get in the US and, and, and Europe, but rather, um, immigration as driving up housing costs, putting pressure on infrastructure, reducing quality of life, and contributing to urban sprawl, uh, and also s ghettos and ethnic isolation. Um, so it's a somewhat different way of um, expressing this anti-immigration sentiment. It comes out with respect to other issues compared to societies where immigrants are poorer uh, than the host population. Um, and what we've actually seen, I would argue, is a rise in uh, right-wing populist phenomena in both Austra in Australia, New Zealand, and increasingly now in Canada. So in New Zealand in 2017, Winston Peters of the New Zealand First Party, a populist right party, went into government with Jacinda Ardern's Labour on a campaign promise of reducing immigration roughly by half, from about 70 to 80,000 down to 40,000. New Zealand first wanted it down around 10 to 20,000. Uh, I think that's a clear, e clear evidence of numbers playing a role in politics and actually empowering a populist right party. In Australia, we haven't quite seen that, although One Nation, which is the populist right party, has recently come back up to where it was at its peak in the late 90s. Uh, and Tony Abbott, the former um, liberal, uh, liberal nationalist prime minister, has um, made the case that uh, immigration needs to be reduced uh, dramatically in Australia. So it's increasingly prominent as a debate there. Um, and then in Canada, which I 
a debate which I'm closer to. Um, what we see is immigration emerging quite recently as an important issue. Uh, in Quebec, uh, where the French, ethnic French-Canadian population as a share of the total has declined from about 80% in the 1960s to uh, roughly 60% today, is projected to go below 50% uh, by 2050. Uh, you see there's a populist right party, the CAQ, which won on a platform of reducing, for the first time ever, actually, um, levels of immigration to the province of Quebec. Uh, and so they won an outright majority. In the province of Ontario, Doug Ford's uh, conservative government, while not campaigning expressly on immigration, has been in tension with Trudeau's liberal government over illegal immigration and wanting the, the federal government to pay the costs of illegal uh, immigration, and Ford's vote base is significantly more anti-immigration than uh, the opposition liberals. <laughs> There's also been a, in a new uh, populist right party called the People's Party, led by uh, Maxime Bernier, um, former conservative uh, MP, and that party, uh, it's fledgling, it's new, but in a by-election in, in, in the Vancouver area, they got 11% of the vote. It remains to be seen how well they're going to do over the in the next election coming up and in the next election cycles. But one thing I would say is if you look at voting data in Canada, um, the gap between liberal and conservative voters on immigration has expanded dramatically in the last five years. It is now a very clear partisan divide in a way it really wasn't even five years ago. So Canada and Australia really are having uh, big debates over numbers. And I would say that if we really are suggesting that things are hunky-dory in these countries on the immigration question, I think we're kidding ourselves. Um, so just to, just to sort of try to conclude here and make some, some observations on policy, deeply held cultural values and psychological dispositions tend to underlie immigration opinion. Uh, numbers matter for the salience of immigration. How important is immigration as an issue to you compared to other issues? The rise in salience is what has allowed the populist right to increase its vote share um, now, when you have a crisis like Brexit, where the economy of the country is in doubt, no one knows what's going to happen, that's going to clearly take airtime away from the immigration issue. And that, I would argue, is what's led to a drop in the salience of immigration in this country. Many Brexit voters think that with Brexit, immigration will fall. And when it doesn't, I think there will be, again, as I've mentioned, um, there will be repercussions to that. Um, However, if Brexit goes badly and the economy's in a tailspin, no one's going to be worrying about immigration. But if it does go well, they will be worrying about it. Um, numbers and not just control and skill are, are what's important. A point system, as in Canada, Australia, is unlikely to be the silver bullet uh, for the problem, as has been mooted in a number of policy documents, such as this House of Commons Home Affairs Committee report on immigration policy based on work by British Future, and I love British Future's work, but a lot of the surveys that they did, which focused on how important, you know, do you want to reduce the supply of doctors and cleaners and so on, we know, again, from experimental evidence that when you focus on these subcategories or individuals, when you ask questions about immigrants as opposed to aggregate effects such as immigration, you get different replies. And I don't think it's actually accurate to say that to the conclusions that they drew, which was that this was about skills, um, and that people actually wouldn't mind as long as there's control, I think are actually mistaken. They emphasize that local impacts are what people care about, yet the survey data shows exactly the opposite. Local is a very small part of the problem. Most people are quite satisfied 
with immigration's local effects, but they're not very satisfied with the impact on the nation as a whole. So local impact funds for immigration, areas that have a lot of immigration, is unlikely to make much difference, I would argue. What we actually need, I would say, is an open conversation about the speed and to accept that some people want a slower speed, others want faster speed, come to an accommodation where each side respects the other and um, there's an accommodation on numbers. That will mean less, that will mean a lower level of immigration than probably exists today, but it will not mean a very low level of immigration because it has to be a compromise between different forces. We have to find a way of being able to have a conversation about the cultural changes which are ultimately underlying uh, a lot of the disquiet over immigration. This is not about hating outgroups. This is simply about attachment to ways of life. And, and in, again, I, I talk about this a lot in my book, where if you look at survey data, say in the United States, um, white Americans who are attached to their white identities are actually no more hostile to African Americans or Latinos than white Americans who are not particularly attached to their white identity. It's a different disposition from dislike about group attachment in group. And it is playing, as in, in America, it is playing in the data here. I think we need to find a way of saying, okay, some people view change as lost. They want things to move more slowly. Some people want it to move more quickly. Both are valid views. Let's find a middle way. I think that's the only way, ultimately, to resolve this and take the steam uh, out of this question. And I'm not sure the government's current approach in this country is going to do that. fascinating presentation, very informative and good to see lots of quants in there. <laughs> so I'll now be opening the floor to questions. We'll be taking questions in batches of three. If I could kindly ask, before you ask your question, if you could state your name and formal affiliation, please. Gentleman here in front of the red tie. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, thank you very much, um, Professor Kaufman. Very fascinating statistics and I think I could see some uh, resonance with uh, David Goodhart's uh, The Road to Somewhere mm. and that differential between the, the somewheres and the anywheres. And I think both categories have very different perspectives of immigration. Um, a couple of points I wanted to pick up on. I mean, one thing you said that... If you could kindly just just keep to the sort of questions. Yeah, I, I, I just want to... Yeah, give a little bit of, of background here. Yeah. So my experience, I, I come from West London, um, at the moment, a lot of suburban London in particular, I imagine it's similar with other cities, is seeing a lot of high-rise development. Um, I think that's because of the population increase, which is very largely attributable to emigration. And there is huge opposition to this. Um, um, and what's interesting is this opposition is among sort of Labour voters, people who perhaps wouldn't uh, well, feel very uncomfortable about talking about immigration at all. And yet, they are impacted this way. Um, I actually live just down the road from me at the Hoover Building, which is probably the UK's most uh, that's, famous that's very nice, Art Deco building. Just move, and just move on to there's the a plan place. to build a 22-story residential tower block. So, um, I uh, my point is, and I suppose yeah. my question is, Thank you. Um, I I would not quite agree with your analysis that people aren't concerned about local impacts because my my observation has been that actually local impacts are very, very significant. Okay. Right, Thank yeah. you for that. Shall I just... Shall I just uh, no, we'll take it we'll back to the three and then we'll, we'll work from there. Right. So, gentlemen here in the splendid right. blue shirt. My name's Mike Holman. 
Uh, you showed one of the slides where there was uh, a differential impact uh, when uh, people were questioned about uh, if there was likely to be less or more uh, white ethnicity uh, as to whether they, they favored immigration. I just wondered if, um, if it was reversed and uh, the question was it increased the number of, if immigration increased the, uh, the white population, say that people came from Europe or the Anglosphere, would that make uh, those same people more inclined to favor immigration? Thank you. Mr. Grant. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Venange, um, uh, you and Grant, I'm a former law enforcement intelligence analyst. I uh, co-wrote uh, customs and excises uh, proposals for relations with the new EU member states at the turn of the century, where we did My question is really based on your closing point that properly handled there's not necessarily any correlation between hostility to immigrants as opposed to immigration and a high sense of cultural value. Could you express doubts as to whether the government was getting that message across? Do you see any signs that governments plural are bringing in civil society and academia to address this gap. I, I would just say I saw the fall of the Soviet Union in 1983 aboard the Soviet warship and I was staggered by the level of ethnic division among the crew. And I saw something rather similar at, at the Alamo in 1984 okay. when I saw two cultures. No, thank you, Mr. Clark. So you just address a few of those points, raise some very interesting points. Right? Yeah, yeah. So the local impact, I mean, I don't want to say local impact has, has no effect. It, I mean, it certainly does. And we know, particularly locales that have rapid ethnic change, Barking and Dagenham is an example of that, Boston and Lincolnshire, that there is certainly Barking's you know, BNP vote in the mid-2000s was very much connected to that rapid change. All I'm saying is that on the, if you aggregate across the country, very few places have, have had this rapid ethnic change. For example, they've had modest ethnic change. Roughly, if you ask people, um, is immigration a problem in your local area? Only about 20% say it is. If it's, is it a problem in the country? 70%. So I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I, I suppose what yeah. my point was more relating to the, the consequences of immigration and the visual impacts the, of hospitals, waiting times for schools, that kind of thing. The perception there's a competition yes. for resources, essentially, and, and that, yes, that, I mean, That's a local impact, but not necessarily from a local immigration change. Right. It could be broader immigration change within a larger area, but it's having a very uh, large impact in one specific area. That's the point. Yeah, I, I think there's probably definitely something to this. Um, and then we can talk more about mm. it. But um, okay, so we, we then had this question here about if it was a, a rise in Europeans. I, I, it's still, I believe, I haven't done the experiment, but I think it would still bring forth a response. Maybe not as strong, but I think it's not so much the Anglosphere, but particularly if we talk about the EU, you'd still get a, a response. I mean, we know in the same second study that the average 
leave voter actually would support a somewhat somewhat higher level of EU migration than non-EU migration. Um, so there is a preference, perhaps slight preference for EU over non-EU migration, um, but it's not you know it's not massive. I still think the non or the EU migration brings in linguistic difference, for example, or cultural mm. difference. So it's it's not strictly religious or or, or racial, for example. Um, so I still think you'd see opposition based on that decline, uh, you know, decline in, in white British share. Of course, once if you in an experiment say, well, the children of these immigrants are actually going to more or less identify as white British, which is heavily, not entirely, but heavily the case, then you actually reduce their opposition to immigration. So it can go different ways depending on how much assimilation people think there is. Um, the last question was, yes, yeah, sorry, uh, your question then about I, about civil society and academia and government working together on this yeah. to, yeah. to um, allay fears on for everyone everywhere um, that your point that loyalty to a particular uh, nationality mindset in you doesn't necessarily translate into hostility to immigration because you might be having yes. to bring in different Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I would like to see that. I don't think it's going to happen, but uh, partly because people don't want to have a conversation about this. They, they, they want, a lot of people want to suggest that if you're from the ethnic majority and you're attached to that ethnicity, then you must hate members or dislike members of outgroups, which is just not the case. Um, of course, there are people who dislike members of outgroups, absolutely, but it's very hard to get that message across. A lot of people from those groups you mentioned, more so academia than, than media and government, but uh, would be resistant to that kind of message. But yes, I think that is a message that does eventually need to come across. Um, that if someone wants slower change, it's not because they dislike outgroups, dislike minorities. That link between wanting to restrict immigration for cultural reasons and being racist or disliking outgroups, I think there needs to be a much more detailed conversation around that that's evidence-based rather than emotional. All right, thank you, Eric. So if we take our next three questions. Andy, you ask your question. Andy Gove uh, with Colette Magazine. Do the social and political consequences of the migrant crisis on this continent provide any <coughs> prediction for what we may be expecting um, in America with uh, the border facilities um, struggling with the influx of uh, migrants from Central and Latin Central America. Yeah, um, uh, if we could just take the yeah, two okay. more questions. Lady there. Thank uh, you, yes. Uh, yeah, my name is Alexandra Siena. I work for, I'm based in London, work for a Cypriot law firm. <coughs> and my question is how do you see Brexit will affect migration or immigration for EU nationals who are not on a point based Brexit decision to leave, but self sufficient or high net worth individuals? The reason I'm asking is that our clients are high net worth Lady there in the 
Yes, yes. Basically, essentially, you're asking if there should be more cultural and religious considerations in our immigration system, just to clear that up. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, okay, all right. Let's back on. What's that? Let's back on with those. Yeah, yeah, okay, sorry. So, so Andy, you asked about um, the U.S. case. So, one of the things, first of all, the, as you probably know, the number of asylum claimants has increased dramatically in the last year <coughs> at the border. Um, I think there's... There, is a similarity in the sense that in the migrant crisis there was this sense of people kind of coming in um, uncontrolled in a way, and, and with the with the asylum seekers from Central America, even though it's not legal per se, once they get in the country and they they aren't deported, it's effectively amounting to the same thing. So I think this is certainly driving salience. If you look at uh, ask Republican voters um, what's the most important issue facing the country. It's about 40% now saying immigration, which is about where Brexit voters were prior to the Brexit vote. Um, so I think we're seeing a very sort of similar kind of discussion going on. If that issue is not addressed, that will remain a highly defining issue in American politics. So um, I'm not sure if I entirely answered your question. Are you thinking future if the flow isn't reduced? Is that what you're I mean, just seeing how it, the, the importance of the salience on immigration, yet at the same time, some of the front runners on the Democrat Party side have have gone much further to uh, the left than traditionally what the Democrats have um, position has been on immigration. Maybe that has a um, as an advantage, I suppose. Um, but I'm wondering, right. when well, it comes to general election, if it will hurt them. Um, I think it will hurt them, um, but, you're, but it's also the case that in that one-third of, say, white Americans who call themselves liberal, uh, the number who say immigration should be increased has, has risen. So there has been this bifurcation. So the liberal, white liberal Americans are much more liberal on immigration than they were even in 2016. So it's going to help amongst those activists, but not amongst that, that group, but not, I think, in the election. That would be my take. I think having no plan for what you're going to do about the border is not, I think, going to help the Democrats. Um, the second question was, you were talking about the e, you know, EU national, high net worth nationals wouldn't make it in under the point system. I, I would have thought they might make it in under the point system. Well, I think the, the government's planning to make it based on the point system. I mean, I think their current level, the levels will remain relatively high. I mean, this, this all depends on what happens to the economy with Brexit. Um, 
But certainly under the current government, it's going to be relatively generous. I mean, I, I can't tell you whether they're going to be harder or softer on that particular category, but it's not, for example, a very restricted immigration regime overall in terms of numbers. So it should be reasonably favorable. Um, last question was, yeah, this, this issue about Islam and, and so on. I mean, again, my, my take on this is that, that the Islam issue is, is not actually the main, I mean, it's not the main driver of opposition to immigration. I still think it's mainly about that sense of loss of the familiar of the, the country you know. Now, that's not to say this isn't playing to some degree. Um, but I, I, I guess I would not sort of favor a, a kind of an immigration discourse that is focusing on Islam specifically. Because it's, that's to put, I think, the question of an outgroup. You know, I, think, I think that's maybe more neg a more negative way to do it because you're focusing attention on, a, on an outgroup. If there is going to be a, a, a values, I think having a values criteria for immigration is reasonable, where you allocate some points for uh, cultural values, uh, but that wouldn't necessarily be sort of it wouldn't be Muslim non-Muslim, but it might be it might discriminate between conservative Muslims and, and more liberal Muslims. So liberal Muslims would be advantaged uh, under that kind of a rule. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Interesting. Um, we have a next. Yes. Hi. Um, oh, no, no, sorry, the gentleman in oh, front of you. We'll have you next as well. Don't worry. Sorry, sorry about that. Sorry, sorry. It, it's a short question. Okay. Oh, I'm very pleased to hear that. Brilliant talk. Thank you very much. You end by saying we need to somehow take the speed out of the issue. And I wonder how we could do that. I mean, people say the same about Brexit. But these are binary issues. You can't sort of divide the case. You either need the EU or you don't. You either have more immigration the same level or less. How can the speed be taken out of the issue? Thank you. Another gentleman. Now, thank you. Yes. Um, James Beckles, um, a councillor in London Borough of Newham, which is with borders buckling down and can also track it down there for crime in communities. So, the question about um, integration, assimilation, um, and also the dialogue that you mentioned to have, the national dialogue. How would you facilitate that dialogue, and how do you propose it, or is it in your book, about having this, this dialogue about immigration? Would it be in the format, say, like Emmanuel Macron doing a national dialogue across the country, or would it be citizens' assemblies, or, or you know, what, what structure, what format? Thank you, that's a very good question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, gentlemen, there, yes. Thank you. How meant from Migration Watch? Brilliant, and I'm sorry I missed the first bit, although I had heard you speak before. I, I, I'd like a little bit more. Um, about the cultural change that people have touched on and you mentioned. What exactly do you mean by that? What is the, the actual shape of cultural change that um, so worries you? Thank you. Those two questions. Very yeah, good yes. Um, so, yes, just um, to, to talk to Bernard Barkendor's point about uh, binary. Um, I, I actually think the reason the immigration issue is binary is because people are moralizing the issue that, for example, if you want to restrict, you are um, a racist, and if you want to expand, maybe you're some rootless cosmopolitan. I think those are both very unhelpful ways of thinking about this. I, I argue in the book that we should think about immigration rates like tax, tax rates, a bit more, a bit less, meeting in the middle, because we are talking about a number, so we should be able to find a number that's in the middle. 
Um, and yet people invest it with this almost religious significance. Um, so I, I do think we should, if we have a, if we can kind of take the moralism out of it, we could actually have a pretty intelligent conversation and reach an agreement. I don't see why we can't. Brexit's obviously a bit trickier. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's soft Brexit, hard Brexit, but uh, that's maybe a middle ground, soft Brexit, perhaps. Um, right, so the second was this good, very good question about what structure the dialogue should take. I actually think the problem is not so much the structure can happen in our West, it can happen at Westminster, it can happen locally. It's much more about the um, restrictions on the conversation, which again are linked to my response to the last question, that if you moralize the conversation, that if talking about cultural loss, cultural change makes you an awful person, that just shuts down this conversation, and the only people who are going to have that conversation are the populist right. And so I really, I think that a lot of the trends in academia or which are pushing towards moralizing this conversation are very negative and actually are leading to divisions and polarization. So my main call simply would be to say, let's have a sort of grown up, uh, you know, take the moralism out of it, understand no one's going to get everything they want. And yeah, there's going to be assimilation, which is taking place on a voluntary basis, not government forced, but it's taking place voluntarily. Uh, that's, again, something we have to talk about. No one really talks about assimilation, only integration, which is a little bit of a weasel word. It can mean many things. Um, last uh, question, which is very interesting um, from Al Mehmet about culture. Yeah, so I, culture is another weasel word, right? So what, is it, what does it actually mean? I, I think there are different layers. And if you look at the literature on assimilation, you know, they start with speaking the language, then they talk about intermarriage and sharing the same identity, sharing the same sense of ancestry. That would be sort of the deepest layer uh, of culture. But uh, what I think central here is that perception of, of shared ethnicity, really, this, that, that, which is subjective. It's, it's really about the sense that we are descended from common ancestors, even if actually there's a lot of other DNA in the population because there's been this melting over time. Um, some kind of common origins, sense of being common origins. Now, that doesn't have to be everybody, but it's what, it's not, so the question is not should Britain or the US or anywhere be multicultural or monocultural. The question is, is one about how much diversity, which, and the diversity is a function of immigration and assimilation. Assimilation reduces the diversity, immigration increases it. What is the appropriate level of ethnic diversity in the society? And that's, Again, one of these conversations that's impossible to have, uh, at least in an academic setting. It's, it's probably more possible in the media and government, but uh, that's where I think we need to go. Thank you. We have our final three questions. Mr. Conway? Uh, yeah. Um, to what extent do you think it's possible to consider uh, the issue of immigration uh, in, in abstraction or separately? from the question of differential fertility rates among different ethnicities. For example, in the United States, whites are now, the, the fertility rate among American whites is well below replacement level. The only reason that the United States is maintaining its population is because its non-whites have a much higher fertility rate. And I think there are corresponding uh, differences among fertility rates among diff uh, different ethnic groups in this country too. 
So if what's driving the concern is shared ethnicity, is how can you begin to consider this without considering fertility? This issue. Lady in the pink in the middle. Yes, thank you. Now, my name is Linda Gollan. I'm just a member of the public from, from Tipton, Brexit. But I'm just wondering why it is that we cannot just say no more immigration. We are a small island. I believe Japan is the most uh, densely populated country in the, in, in the world, anyway. We are maybe the third. Um, so, and I come from Kent, and we've got, you know, I used to live on a farm maybe six, seven miles from the main town. And the housing creeping up halfway and it's and also you know the race course about to be taken over and it's due to go from Ashford to Folkestone you know total uh, housing so so essentially the question is wh wh why yes yeah, why can't we just have some shutdown that's it that's it that's it not 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 First question, if you take the cultural aspects, is it immigration good or bad out of the equation, there's going to be a lot more old people in the country that we're going to need to support compared to working age population in 20 years. And you make a really good point that this issue isn't dead with the points-based system, so we're going to revisit it. I suppose my question is, do you think um, the population uh, is going to be more happy to pay more taxes, more happy to have more children, more happy to retire later on, because you know that's effectively what's what we're going to have to do. I, I don't know if and I don't know if any modelling has been done on that at all, or what your thoughts are. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So, well, uh, good question about ethnic fertility rates. I mean, you asked what what we've seen is actually the Hispanic fertility rate has plummeted the fastest. So it was sort of 2.8 in the early 2000s, kids on average per woman, compared to about two for white Americans. The white rate's gone to about 1.7, something like that. And the Hispanic is now, as far as I can remember, is below two as well. Um, I actually think, and the, the black fertility is actually reasonably low as well. I don't think actually this is, it's not, I think it's around 2.1. It's pretty, it's not particularly high. Um, and the East Asians are obviously the, the lowest. So you kind of, I'm not sure that fertility picture is going to be that <coughs> incredibly important in the U.S. In, in Britain as well, there's been a lot, a lot of convergence, but not, not, not total convergence, you're right. So there's a higher fertility amongst South Asian Muslims, but it's still only about 2 point Particularly communities of Pakistani and Bangladeshi. Right, right. I mean... The other thing you have to remember, I suppose the question is, is about intermarriage and the offspring of people who are mixed, right? So that is a factor which, which I would argue would, would tend to reduce diversity. We know of people who are, say, of Muslim, from a Muslim majority ethnic group who marry a non-Muslim, their offspring will tend or have a much higher likelihood of, of moving from saying I'm Muslim to I have no religion. So there's a, there is a shift away from it's, it's much more in France than it is in Britain. So France has a much higher Muslim assimilation than, than Britain does. But I'm not, I'm not sure this will be a fertility story so much. But it's important to, but it's certainly the hangover from very high fertility differences, say, in the 70s, uh, is, is working <coughs> through the age structure. So that's, that's going to have an effect. And that's why even if immigration cut to zero, you'd still see considerable 
ethnic shifts. Um, and, and so the, this leads on to the second question about, yeah, can immigration be cut to zero? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a significant chunk of people who will, would like to see immigration cut to zero, but the, if you take the average of the population, the number that people, we did, again, from this 2017 study, we kind of came up with a number of roughly 100,000 or thereabouts as the, the number that would be the median number that people kind of wanted. But, but that doesn't mean there isn't a significant group of people who say it should be zero. Uh, so that is a, a, there's a significant <coughs> chunk, particularly of leave voters who want that. Um, uh, my position is there should be some kind of a middle ground position on numbers. Last point is, yeah, a good question again about aging population. Now, one of the big myths actually is that immigration can address the aging crisis uh, and it cannot for the and this is sort of mathematical that as you bring people in they age and so the number of people you'll need to bring in to maintain your age structure expands logarithmically so I think Korea has to bring in you know hundreds of millions or at least tens of millions to kind of keep that age structure what it is it's not really a solution um, the solution is yes it's probably going to be a combination of retirement any group that's underrepresented in the labor force could be women, could be old people, increasing that. Um, there's also been work, though, by demographers that say that sort of a 50-something person in China and an 80-something person in Norway have pretty similar cognitive skills simply because of the way age is framed in different countries. So actually using a crude measure like people 18 to 65 and divide that, you know, that's your productive population is actually pretty crude. And that a lot of people are productive, at least in Western countries, well beyond 65. So I think, um, I think it's a bit of a fallacy to claim that, that immigration has much to do with addressing the aging crisis. Uh, but yeah, obviously, eventually, you know, with the below replacement fertility, something's going to have to give. But that could just mean a declining population until such time as fertility increases. But we, don't, we do not know yet how to get fertility above the two level in a Western country. So. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's us out of time. I'd like to thank you for joining us for today's event. I hope you found it very interesting. Please show your appreciation. Like <laughs> No, no, exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah.